The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. And now, as the cross draws near, Jesus' last night becomes the darkest night in mankind's history. There, in the shadows with Jesus, the swelling darkness makes every effort to overtake our Savior. The coming scenes of suffering are the backdrop for this night as Jesus prepares to face the hardest day of his project of salvation for the guilty through the substitution of the innocent. John composed his gospel to provide reasons of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares, these things are written that you may believe. We come this morning to this beginning of a new major section of the Gospel of John. John is 21 chapters, and five of those chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are given to this last evening with the disciples before the cross. In all of the Gospels, there are various long sermons and discourses of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. But of all the discourses of Jesus. This is the lengthiest in all four Gospels. This is a strategic moment because the very next day, this is Thursday night before the cross, and within 24 hours of this night, the body of Jesus Christ will lie dead in the tomb. The cross is upon him. And now, he must Say what he will say to these disciples in his last night with them prior to his crucifixion. And of course, he will meet with them again after the resurrection. But in this moment, there is an acute preparatory process that must be undertaken. Remember, the, the disciples came from all manner of walks of life. None of, none of them had been had been intentionally trained in leadership. They were, they were fishermen. They were former tax collectors, sellouts to the Roman Empire, in the case of Matthew. They were, they were in the case of Simon the Zealot, former political revolutionaries, part of a party of assassins, and every other sort of walk of life. And now... Now they must lead. Ephesians 2.20 says that the, the ministry of the apostles is a foundation for the church. These men must be prepared to take on a foundational leadership role. Then as now, the world understands leadership uh, in, in, in certain ways. And like many of you, I've, I've read a whole bunch of books about leadership. I've attended the seminars, listened to the lectures. When it comes down to it, the world's consensus on leadership is that leadership is the means whereby, either by manipulation or coercion, I get you to do what I want you to do for my good. That's an ugly definition, but 
I think it's defensible. Well, unsurprisingly, leadership in our Lord's kingdom is going to look way different than that. Is and ought to look way different than that. And, and, and before I go further, let me remind you that God has given you, each of you in the room, this is not a sermon for, for pastors or CEOs or entrepreneurs or generals or admirals. God has given you a sphere of influence and impact within which you have the opportunity to lead. This is how leadership is to look. John chapter 13, verses one through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I've formed an outline around six characteristics of a leader as our Lord models in this passage. Uh, let's, let's have a look. Roman numeral one, what does it look like to lead? Roman numeral one, a leader has confidence. Confidence. That's not the same as hubris. It's not the same as being consumed by pride. It is a, an awareness that is ground, grounded here in at least three things. Letter A on your outline, Jesus demonstrates knowledge of self. 
In the very beginning, verse one, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world into the Father. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he had come to do. Jesus was um, supremely self-aware. It's not a bad thing for a leader to cultivate self-awareness. Now, you and I are not Jesus. Our self-awareness involves things like developing where our, where our blind spots tend to be, where our weaknesses are, an honest assessment of, of what our strengths are, where are we more capable, where are we less capable. Growing in that awareness will make one a more confident leader. Not only knowledge of self, but let her be love for others. Love for others. A worldly leader sees others merely as a means to that leader's ends. Well, that's not godly leadership. Godly leadership comes from a place of authentic love. And remember, love is an unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others. Jesus is going to demonstrate that in history's most dramatic loving act as he is going to go to the cross within just hours of this discourse, of this example. And Jesus is motivated, the Bible says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then let her see a grasp of the big picture. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. Further, according to verse 11, Jesus knew all the shenanigans that Judas Iscariot was up to. He saw that in that gathering of, of 13 men in that upper room, there were much, 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 much larger things going on. And it is wise for you as you lead in the sphere that God has given you to keep in mind that whatever, whatever small picture you're participating in in a moment, in a, in, a, in a little episode, in a little encounter, there is always... In, in, in God's creation, there is always a much larger and much higher priority picture to be attended to, to consider, to act in light of. Jesus was confident. He knew who he was. He knew he loved these men, and he knew exactly what was going on. Not only confidence, but also, Roman 2, condescension. Now, I want to be careful because um, sometimes the word condescension is, is used, and it's an appropriate use of the word. It's an appropriate definition to mean sort of a patronizing, looking down the nose. But that is not the only quite legitimate definition of condescension. Uh, this is from Merriam-Webster. Condescension is a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relation with an inferior. 
A voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relation to an inferior. Condescension. Jesus is about to do something unthinkable. Verses four and five, he, he gets up from the, from the meal. See, the, the duty to wash feet probably belonged at the beginning of the meal. Now we know here they are within, within the meal. The meal has been happening. They would recline at the meal in a way that would, would not have their feet hidden safely under a table like you and I would sit at a table to eat, but they would be reclining on some sort of cushions on a low, near a low table and, and having, having dirty feet. And, and the sort of dirty feet in view here is very different than what you and I would call dirty feet. I suspect, in fact, I'm really confident there's not a pair of dirty feet in the room this morning. The vast majority of us, if not all of us, have in recent hours acquainted our feet with hot water, soap. Like me, you probably put on clean and snazzy socks as you got ready for the morning if you're a sock-wearing kind of person. Put your feet in shoes that have not been, well, grungy. But the disciples would have spent the day on the open streets of Jerusalem. Now the streets of Jerusalem would have been constantly muddy and not because of rain. The streets in Jerusalem doubled as the sewer system for Jerusalem. And out of, every, out of every building would come the, the buckets of the most wasteful of waste. And that would be dumped into the streets, ultimately to flow downhill to various creeks around the base of, of, of the hilltop on which Jerusalem sat. The streets were an open sewer. And they were constantly traveled by animals that added their own unique agricultural contribution to the filth of those streets. One would spend the day walking those streets in open sandals. Slosh, slosh, slosh. Or perhaps barefoot. Ew. And so when one came to the evening meal, the assignment would be given to the lowest ranking servant available. If you, had a, if you had a servant you wanted to punish, congratulations, you got foot washing duty. The lowest ranking person that could be found would be assigned the duty to go into that grunge around the foot between the toes, ooh. Now notice the meal has already progressed, which means that all of the disciples have had the opportunity to, go, to think in their heads, look, I don't know who the lowest ranking person in the room, I'm, I'm clear who the highest ranking person in the room is, that's the Lord Jesus. And I wonder, am I willing to entertain the possibility that I'm the lowest ranking person in the room and wash feet? I don't think so. And so when Jesus stands up to undertake this duty himself, it's a shock. Jesus begins to 
clean the feet of his disciples. Leadership entails service to others, motivated by love, not the promotion of self. Not the promotion of self, but humility, love, service to others. Jesus demonstrates this in this act of condescension. Of course, the disciples, um, many of them don't understand, and, and the, the one you can count on to be the rash spokesperson whose, whose whole commitment to how he expresses himself verbally, at least up to this point, is sort of ready, fire, aim. Simon Peter. In fact, in the next moments, we, we, we're brought to notice two particular from among the 12. Simon Peter, who as, as verbally gawky as he is, as awkward as he is, as prone to shoot off at the mouth as he is, as prone to impulsiveness as he is, Simon Peter wants to follow Jesus. Simon Peter is committed to his Lord. So we have Simon Peter that we look at for a moment and then lurking at the table is Judas Iscariot who opposes everything Jesus stands for, who has already launched his plot with the Jewish leadership and now awaits only the moment to execute it, to play his role about which we'll say more next week in setting up the events of the cross. Two men, Peter and Judas. One, one who desires to follow well. The other, a traitor. We see two things in the compassion, Roman three of Jesus. First, letter A, we see that those who follow well deserve clarity and confirmation. Oh, Simon Peter, Jesus comes to him and Simon Peter objects the Lord states the necessity, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Now Jesus is making a gospel statement there. He's making a theological statement there. He is once again claiming that I am the means and the washing that I will provide. Ultimately, in my sacrifice on the cross just hours from now, the, the, the bathing that I provide you is your only means to know God. Jesus once again claims that exclusivity that sits at the heart of the Christian message. Well, Simon Peter still loves to tell the Lord what the Lord's going to do and, and very, very emphatically says, you shall never wash my feet. Now that, that there, there are multiple negatives piled into that statement by Simon Peter. It's something like, you will never, and I mean never, wash my feet. And that's when Jesus says, look, if I don't wash you, we don't have a relationship. And then Simon Peter, impulse, flips very quickly and goes, well, if that's, if that's what matters, then wash my feet and my hands and my head and just break out the pressure wash. You see the compassion of Jesus when he says, Simon, Simon Peter, the one who has been bathed, or the one who has bathed, needs not, does not need to wash. 
except for his feet, but is completely clean. Oh, there is so much theology in that statement of Jesus. There is so much. Jesus says, look, once you are bathed, as I've spoken of, once you are made mine by the cleansing that I provide, you are mine. You are completely clean. That, that sentiment is expressed as succinctly as anywhere else in the Bible in a, the precious, precious Hebrews 10, verse 14. Hebrews 10, 14, which speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross makes this statement. For by a single offering, that is the offering of himself on the cross, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The work of Jesus cross, Christ on the cross declares justified, right with God, perfected for all time, all who will ever be saved. Your salvation, if you are saved, was fully finally and forever accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. You can add nothing to it. You can take nothing from it. It is finished. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you have bathed, you are completely clean. But what about this little, except for his feet, this little um, you don't need to wash except your feet. Well, do not lose the declaration that the cross has made us perfected for all time, or as Jesus put it here, completely clean. In our standing before God, in our relationship with God's justice, we are declared completely clean by the cross. But our feet get dirty. We walk around in sinful places. It's a messed up world and we're doing our part to keep it that way, you and I. It's a different verb. Notice even in our ESV, the verb bathe as opposed to the verb wash is used here in, in this verse. The, 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 the occasional washing up is not to keep us right with God. It's to keep our fellowship with God open and free-flowing. Rather like a child apologizing to a good parent. The parent-child relationship has not been affected by the child's misdeed. But it's a good thing for the child to come to mom and dad when the child has done something wrong and say, I think I blew that. Can we be okay with each other? Or words to that effect. 1 John 1, 9 speaks to this dynamic. If we confess, and that if we confess there, that verb confess is a present tense participle, which in, in the original means an ongoing action in the present time, if we are confessing. If in an ongoing way we are confessing our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get those feet washed. 
In light of the fact that you are completely clean, this is book, 1 John is written to believers. In light of the fact that you are clean, in light of the fact that you have been perfected for all time by that one sacrifice on the cross, ongoing confession will keep the dunk off your feet. Give you a walk that doesn't stink. And he conveys that to Simon Peter as out of compassion because Simon Peter, who desires to follow well, needs clarity and confirmation. Judas Iscariot gets a courteous confrontation. I wonder when Jesus said you, and by the way, that end of verse 10, you are clean, that you is plural. If the ESV translators were the masters of language that they ought to be, it would say y'all. <laughs> and y'all are clean, but not every one of you. And I wonder if in that moment there was eye contact. I promise you there was a heart to heart. I promise you Judas Iscariot knew absolutely well that Jesus was talking about and to him. Certainly Jesus knew. And there is a courtesy even in this confrontation to the one who opposes. In the sphere where you lead, you will at times encounter those who will oppose you. The fruit of the Spirit matter most in difficult relationships. That's where they pop by contrast. That's where they show up. I got somebody I got to chew out. And the good news is I get to invoke the chew out clause of the fruit of the Spirit so I can do this in the flesh. No, no, there is no chew out clause. So when you have to correct someone who has opposed your leadership, you must do so in a way that reflects love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-discipline. Or else you're just doing it in an ungodly way. In that world where leadership has something to do with coercion and manipulation. Hmm. A couple other characteristics. Number four, candor. Candor. Just a straightforward saying of the truth. Henry Cloud, in his excellent book entitled Integrity, repeatedly makes the statement, the truth is always your friend. That's a good thing to remember. The truth is always your friend. Here Jesus says, you call me Lord and Master, and that's good. I am. None of the, none of the all, all shucks, I'm not expecting to lead you guys. No, this is the spear in fact, all of creation is the sphere where I'm in charge. And in this room, I certainly am appropriately addressed as master, Lord, teacher. You're right. That's the role that has fallen to me. And in the sphere where you lead, own the role that has fallen to you. From time to time, I'm asked out there whether or not I am the pastor of the McGregor Baptist Church in Fort Myers. When I'm asked that question that way, I always respond, at least if I'm thinking, and I try to be thinking. No, I'm not the pastor of the McGregor Baptist Church. I'm one of the 15 pastors of the McGregor Baptist Church. 
which truth I hold very, very dearly. But if the question is asked, are you the lead pastor of the McGregor Baptist Church in Fort Myers, I am blessed to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, I am. By the will of God expressed through the congregation, I occupy that role. No point in saying that I don't. It's not a bigger deal than it is, but it is what it is. And candor, if you're the if you're the one called to lead the team that's gonna solve the problem, you lead the team that solves the problem. If you're the, if you're the general, the majors get to salute you. If you're the CEO with your name on the door, you get to make the consequential decisions. There's nothing in any of this that rails against candor, saying things to be as they are. Roman five, consistency. Consistency. Jesus when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I've done? I have, verse 15, I have given you an example. I have given you an example. Has anybody here ever tried the don't do as I do, do as I say school of leadership? Don't pay attention to my actions, merely listen to my words, and thus I will lead you. Have you ever tried that? Good, I'm glad few of you have. Because if it worked for you, it'd be the first time in history it ever did. Parents, say to your kids, don't watch my life, listen to my words. You won't get two feet. You will not get a constructive response. Employers, don't, don't pay attention to my character, employees. You obey the rules. Do as I say, not as I do, will never work. And here, the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords has done the slave job and said, if you want to lead, you look for the slave job. You look for the task no one else wants. You look for the opportunity to step into humility and love for the well-being of those whom you lead. Then, only then, can you claim to be leading in a way the king of the universe says do it. Consistency. By the way, some here, and I'll chase this rabbit very, very briefly, some have taken Jesus' direction here, you do just as I have done to you, that Jesus is here uh, setting up a third ordinance. We hold that there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some have held that foot washing is an ordinance. We do not. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. First, um, it is nowhere else in any of the New Testament encouraged as an ordinance. In the book of Acts, it tells us the first 30 years of the history of the church, it is not modeled as an ordinance. It's missing. So therefore, it seems clear that the, the church was not to take it up as an ordinance. Also, it, it, I think it's a good observation. A, a theologian whom I know and love and try to pay a great deal of attention to, Pastor David Miller uh, on our staff here, part of our church, uh, pointed out in our sermon planning meeting on Tuesday that the ordinances picture the gospel itself, the gospel proper in, in baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, the picture of sacrifice on the cross. Foot washing teaches an essential lesson. 
what leadership is to look like. But foot washing does not picture the gospel itself. And so I, I agree with our position that it does not rise to an ordinance. But what an example. And then finally, Roman numeral six, clarity. Verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus gives them what a, a leader cannot expect outcomes where he hasn't been clear regarding his expectations. Her expect, it, is, it is nobody's job to read your mind. Uh, wives, I'm sorry about that. Husbands, you don't get to elbow her when I say that. But it's nobody's job to read anybody else's mind. And here Jesus gives them an orientation when he says, if you know these things, these things that I have laid out for you, I've been very, very clear with you about what leadership is going to look like. So you've, you've got that now. You have the, the, the gift of clarity, and not only in orientation, but in expectation. Humility is loving service. I mean, pardon me, leadership is humility and love in service to others for their well-being. Blessed are you if you do them. The Lord has placed you in a sphere with the opportunity to lead. Don't buy the world's models for how that's done. Our Lord has shown us and told us as he prepared to turn a group of 12, actually 11, broad background followers into the most influential group of leaders the world has ever seen. And it starts with washing feet.